Jane Majewick is an ecologist and author with 30 years of experience of working internationally on the science, policy, and practice of wetlands and water management. Since 2004, she has been CEO of Wetlands International, leading a network of 20 offices operating in over 100 countries. Wetlands International works to mobilize the conservation and restoration of wetlands, connecting science, policies, and practices for biodiversity, resilient communities, and reduced climate risks. Jane Madrick, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Tell us a little about your journey and why you chose to focus on wetlands. Why is it now more crucial than ever that we preserve and restore wetlands? I think from a very young age, I wanted to work with nature and conservation. So that this was set very early and I got involved how I could, studying, of course, but volunteering, then doing field research. I suppose I had a, a science entry to the business, to ecology and conservation. Um, but pretty much through experience, you learn that it's it's not just about science, but it's really about bringing people together around conservation. And through the various roles I took, I was always more fascinated about anything to do with water. Wetlands, they're really fascinating places, and uh, they're so central to people's uh, culture, to art, as well as in very many practical ways to human survival. Um, so... Once I started to to work with wetlands, I was hooked. Uh, so the last 30 years, that's uh, water and wetlands has been my focus. And, uh, you know, I love trees but uh, and forests, but I think pales into insignificance compared with uh, what wetlands have to, to offer. And Wetlands International, well, it's quite an old organisation. It's more than 60 years now. And it's the only global NGO which focuses on one kind of ecosystem. So it's interesting. And that's because uh, wetlands have been under pressure for a very long time. And so the signs of wetlands disappearing, being lost, and the impacts of that were, were noticed a long time ago. So WWF, for example, was born out of a concern over wetlands, wetlands like the Doñana uh, wetland in Spain. Initially, I think the organisation was very science-based. It was very focused on, on species and sites. So the organisation evolved in the last... 20, 30 years especially, and in the last 10 years, really to see wetlands not as just special places or sites needing protection, but really as water systems in the landscape, which are all about the health of the landscape and of the planet and are linked with people's well-being in many different ways, as well as biodiversity. And of course, as well as uh, the climate. So being the biggest water stores, but also the, the carbon stores, much the biggest uh, terrestrial carbon stores. Yeah, the fate of wetlands is really linked with the changes in the climate and our possibilities to reverse the negative changes, as well as the possibility to provide enough food and water for a growing population. The condition of wetlands is linked to all of that. That's why our organisation and the work we do with many, many partners has really come into the foreground, has become more relevant as, uh, as this has been realised. And people don't realise that it dwarfs uh, that of, um, you know, what forests do, which is already immense as the lungs of our planet. I think it's because of the diversity that people, some people ha still have a difficulty getting their head around what is wetlands. You're dealing with so many different, as you said, distinct ecosystem, but it goes from like coastal wetlands or, you know, freshwater wetlands. And then the, not to mention the fact is water source. So then it affects the food we eat. 
Yeah, that's right. I think it's much easier for people to um, visualize a forest or woodland uh, or even an ocean, say. Um, but wetlands, yeah, they take so many forms from, from the glaciers and in the high mountains, the rivers and streams and swamps, even underground systems, the coastal marshes and, and you know, salt marshes and mangroves, even the shallow seas. And they're very dynamic. You definitely can't sort of put them in a box or put, put a fence around them to protect them. I, I always say, you know, wetlands are the place where land and water meet. And they are the connectors in the landscape. And uh, they connect the forests and the, the lands, agricultural lands, to the oceans. And so we have to also understand them as, as these systems and not, are not just individual sites. And so the way in which we go about making sure they come into better condition, it's also quite complex because we have to look at the whole watershed or catchment and see how better to manage this connection between land and water and what that means in terms of critical wetland sites in the landscape, which are in a sense acting as a kind of infrastructure. And the danger is that if the, the values of wetlands are not well understood, well, then clearly they get overlooked and wetlands just disappear. And then, of course, it's a problem because we need to invest in many technical solutions to, to come up with a way to replace those lost values that wetlands have brought, like uh, losing the wetland buffers along the coast. That has happened worldwide. And, well, many ways have been tried to replace <laughs> the function that wetlands like mangroves, salt marshes provided, and most of them don't work very well. And hence now wetlands are very much termed as nature-based solutions. So bringing back wetlands, of course, not coming back to what was there 30, 40 years ago, but actually creating new ways to bring nature alongside other engineering solutions, for example, in innovative designs that can really marry the benefits of, you know, hard and soft infrastructure, grey and green. I think this is a very ex exciting uh, field. So restoration, yeah, people tend to think, yeah, it's about just putting back what was lost, but pretty much every time now it's not. It's about rethinking, recreating, revisioning our landscapes, using the knowledge of, about how wetlands uh, did function, using the traditional knowledge and combining that with new insights in science and coming up with uh, new ways to, to balance out all the different needs and, and values in the landscape. It is interesting, the different, because not all geoengineering solutions are the same, you know, some are just science fiction, it seems like, and, uh, but we have spoken to some groups like the weather makers are talking about uh, desertification, and what are your insights into that? It's also, it's, it's quite in intensive, it does take a lot of work. Yeah, it's fascinating what the, the weather makers are um, proposing. I, I think there's a yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you lose big areas of natural habitat, the weather will change. And if you can restore them on a big scale, you know, you bring it back. We see this in Sahelian Africa, for example, where the river and floodplains, uh, they make up about 10% of what is an otherwise enormous dry land area. But as these wetlands have shrunk, it has changed, uh, of course, the amount of water that goes down it, it to replenish the aquifers, and this in turn is, is influencing the weather patterns. 
So as, as the landscape changes, we, we change the weather systems in ways we don't completely understand. I think some of the, the techniques to use geospatial data and modeling to, to understand, you know, where and how could we restore nature to make the biggest shifts, positive shifts in our environment. I think this is a very exciting uh, realm. It wasn't available 10 years ago. Your emphasis on nature-based solutions is really interesting, given that they're relatively low-cost, scalable, and highly accessible compared to these new higher-end technologies. Why haven't policymakers prioritized these solutions in the past, and do you see a shift towards more simple nature-based solutions in the future? I think what we've seen in the recent uh, climate summit in, in Glasgow um, under the climate convention is that, that there's no doubt everybody understands that uh, nature has to be part of the solution to reduce the impacts of climate change. You know, that's, it's not just an option, it's, it's an essential part of the solution. It's not just a possible option for a local technical problem, it's actually a part of the global solution. I, th I think that realisation is there. Um, if there has been hesitation, I think it's more to do with not really being certain at a country level, okay, uh, which kinds of ecosystems should we be focusing on and, and how do we bring this data into our climate uh, action plans? And what does it really mean that we have to do on the ground? And I think it's that uncertainty which uh, has held a lot of parties back. Um, but I do see really um, fast growing interest of both governments and private sector to focus on uh, nature-based solutions and, and not only in a very local way like, uh, you know, green roofs or something like this, but, but really looking citywide or landscape-wide, uh, more systems approach and, and how to build in both policy and uh, financing incentives for that. So the limit on it is, is, for the most part, I think a lack of capacity also, the fact that many of the incentives which are driving um, which are driving uh, developments which undermine nature and destroy nature, many of those financial incentives, policy incentives still remain. That's a very big problem. So now more incentives for nature-based solutions are coming in, but you still world is moving in the wrong direction. So uh, I think uh, the big turnaround will only happen when we adjust. The, the bigger uh, financial policy drivers. Yes, because obviously the, the opposite are like desalination and these things are, are so expensive and it's, it's lovely when nature provides that answer. I'm not sure, maybe we have to do a combination of, of the two, when you look at statistics like, I don't know, 2050, that over 30% of cities will experience water scarcity, that we have to be more proactive. I mean, what for you are the priorities? I guess with this situation, we have to prioritize things and what you focus on. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's a combination of natural solutions and more technical ones. I think the first priority is, is the number one value, the wetlands that remain. You know, even a small wetland in a city, um, some will be familiar with um, the small lakes, for example, ponds in, in New York City in Central Park. You know, in combination, these actually lower the temperature, so help people in the city to survive the, the heat stress uh, that comes with climate change. So just understanding that they do this, valuing them, um, and that, that applies, you know, in every country. 
this is the starting point. Then we can stop degrading the resource that, that's there. Um, and then the, I think the second one is identify exactly the, what I would call the wetland hotspots, you know, which are the wetlands in the world which are absolutely crucial as a resource, uh, a lifesaver for the most poor and vulnerable people, you know, who are directly dependent on the wetland resources, food, for water, for shelter, etc. Let's safeguard those. Let's safeguard the wetlands which are having a big impact in, in regulating the climate and water availability um, and resources for subsistence agriculture and fisheries. You know, let's make some priorities there. And then let's look for where restoring wetlands would make the biggest difference for nature and people. You know, wetlands uh, support 40% of biodiversity on this planet, 40%. And we're losing them three times faster than forests. So, you know, this has to stop. We need to recognize where these wetlands are and make sure they can survive. Well, the science is there, honestly, to bring this kind of information to the fore. And, uh, you know, things like the Global Mangrove Watch, which we launched um, with our uh, Global Mangrove Alliance partners this year, this is bringing knowledge available online to to policymakers in, at the global level, country level, to, to people who are just in, a, in you know, one mangrove site, say West Africa, they can all draw on this information and, and get good advice about where the priorities ought to be and, and access to a whole range of tools and approaches that can enable action. So I think there are, there are many things like this we can do to, to bring, bring the knowledge together, make it available um, so that others can pick it up and, and mobilize themselves. Water generally is so fascinating. And you think about history, because I was speaking to, um, I'm sure you know, Giulio Boccaletti who wrote uh, the biography, uh, Water Biography. And it's just, you think about water that is so bound up with politics, our history, uh, the formation, of course, of our cities as well. Or if you look back, you know, to the Roman Empire, all, all these things, you cannot extricate it. Um, and so it was so heartening also to see water on the table now this most recent COP. And, and what, uh, what do, you, do you feel positive about the guidelines? Do you feel hopeful about our ability to reach targets? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd share your interest in, in, in water and how water has shaped humanity and civilizations. And also perhaps some despair <laughs> That, that we're not really making great progress in managing water resources uh, properly. Um, so it was excellent that there was a big focus on this in, in the recent climate summit through a whole range of partners, including Wetlands International, really raising this up and saying, hey, climate is mostly affecting people through changes in water one way or another. We need to manage it better. I think we're, we're very far from achieving what we need to do on this, and that's because it, it's actually pretty complicated in many situations. If you think that, say, in Africa, most of the, the water basins, yeah, they include 10 or 12 countries, and the, the bodies that are trying to, to grapple with this, to manage it, they have very few resources. The knowledge isn't, isn't centralized. Um, resources to, to do better land and water management, yeah, it's under-resourced. So this is a big, this is a big problem. There's no one global solution. It's all uh, local solutions. But there, there are some good examples coming forward, which can encourage 
especially uh, the different sectors like agriculture and uh, those who are providing water supply uh, to those who are driving agricultural production to, to really work together on better managing uh, water resources. I think, you know, I, I despair that all the you know, billions that are devoted to improving water supply to people still failing to invest a, a percentage of that in taking care of the surrounding landscapes, particularly wetlands, which are the source of water and the sinks for water. You know, if we don't safeguard those sources and sinks in, in the landscape, there will be no water to supply. So it really doesn't make sense just to build up big funds for providing pipes and pumps and toilets, for example, if we don't take care of the landscape that is safeguarding those resources for the long term. And I think this is understood, but there are too many different silos. You know, there are different kinds of institutions that deal with the different parts of the water problem. And these are not working well enough together yet. And mostly, even if we connect water and climate better, we're leaving ecosystems out of that. So it should be water, ecosystems, climate. I think this, this we need to work on in this coming year before uh, COP27 in, in Egypt, where I'm sure water will be a big issue. Oh, it's definitely. And you must, from analyzing all different, you know, water systems around the world and how certain societies, you know, are, I guess they don't have a choice or it's also a philosophical, spiritual uh, relationship with the land where they really do live within their limits and then to see, I find it heartbreaking to see that where we kind of waste, you know, waste our resources. What would, what do you feel we can learn from some of those agricultural practices or relationship with the land that is uh, just more respectful and conservative? Yeah, I think this is a really important point. You know, what I notice from my own experience, but also reading is there are some fantastic traditional systems for harvesting and capturing capturing and distributing water in the landscape to conserve water and to fairly share water in, uh, in the landscape. And we are losing the habit of doing that. And I, I know uh, in many parts of the world, there are NGOs who are, are bringing these to life and, and encouraging them to come back. Um, so water tanks in, in India, for example, um, in the Middle East and North Africa, yeah, water was always re regarded as a, as a really precious resource. Those fantastic traditions. Unfortunately, a lot of this has been destroyed by big water infrastructure developments that haven't looked at the bigger picture uh, of water in the landscape and who stands to gain and lose from redistributing water, damming water, etc. So, you know, we've had decades of ill-informed water infrastructure development, and that takes um, a lot to change. What we can do is make sure that where new water infrastructure is coming in, that it doesn't destroy traditional water conservation systems, and that instead the reverse, that alongside it looks at the bigger picture and really enables a nature-positive approach and better water sharing between all the stakeholders. I think this is, this is uh, what can be done. But there's so much to learn from the history of good management of water, usually you know, by smallholders and at small scale, but adding up to really an effective system. 
You've touched on collaborating with local and indigenous communities and really prioritizing specific local solutions for various wetland ecosystems. I'm curious how those partnerships work with Wetlands International and local communities and how do you overcome potential hesitancies? Yeah, it's it's really part of our DNA as Wetlands International to to work very closely with uh, local and indigenous communities. So we are distributed network organization. We're not centralized. So all our local offices, they're in charge of developing and nurturing those kind of partnerships. Uh, We work with community leaders. Um, Sometimes we even bring them into our team for the purpose of of programs. So we're part of the community, if you like, and we take time to build those relationships of trust. uh, And we work with the ideas and with the intent of the local communities uh, and build a common vision with them um, rather than you know, diving in with a solution that, that would never be our approach. Uh, so we're more there to uh, connect the local knowledge and aspirations with uh, some knowledge we can bring from working with partners who can help, for example, show local people where what they do fits in the bigger landscape and how changes perhaps far away in the landscape are affecting, say, their water supply and helping them to have the ability to, to influence, giving them the knowledge to influence decisions made at different scales in the landscape in the country, for example. It's a kind of science policy practice um, connection that we help to bridge. And we help to find them access to finance and then put the, the actions in their hands so that, that, that they can drive the solutions themselves. So we're there to help them to do that work and to connect them to the bigger picture. And then make sure they have ownership of, of, of what happens. I mean, literally ownership, that the land that, that they restore, for example, is brought into the, the village plans, that it, it is, the ownership is, is there for the future and to to work with them to influence the plans at different levels uh, in the country. So it's it's a multi-layered approach. And uh, well, it's just part of what we've learned is is needed. You know, in the end, the the changes, the positive changes in the landscape are only safe if the communities um, are driving it forward. Jane Madgwick emphasizes moving beyond science through prioritizing partnerships and human connection and combining contemporary research and technology with traditional knowledge. With over 30 years of experience, Jane entered the wetland conservation field as a researcher and scientist. Despite her scientific background, she learned that conservation is in the most fundamental sense a partnership, an agreement between various actors grounded on a promise of respect and protection of the natural landscape. This commitment drives Wetland International's mission of preserving wetland ecosystems across the globe through its partnerships with the public and private sectors, NGOs, and local and indigenous communities. Water is fundamentally a shared resource. Ecosystems transcend national borders, geopolitical conflicts, and cultural and ethnic groups. Sharing research and solutions will be critical in ensuring the longevity of our Earth. Wetlands International facilitates this collaboration through its decentralized network. Local offices assist communities in creating a common vision and developing strategies to ensure ownership of the land and its protection. 
Although the various actors that have interest in preserving our wetlands have different cultures, land management systems, and economic abilities, Jane says that they must unite under a common goal. She said the most recent UN climate conference in Glasgow represents a new energy surrounding partnerships and goals for wetland conservation. International actors are coming to understand that wetlands can no longer be excluded in our dialogue surrounding the climate crisis. However, countries still have a long way to go in creating ambitious, targeted, and cost-effective solutions for preserving our wetlands. Along with her strong belief in partnership, Jane's successes should be attributed to her ability to connect traditional knowledge with new research and technologies. She advocates for nature-based solutions combined with engineering to create a balance between soft and hard infrastructure. But new tech and infrastructure must leave room for indigenous stakeholders and promote their knowledge production and ownership. Any belief that these are mutually exclusive is a myth. We must move beyond restoration. Instead, Jane urges us to reimagine and recreate new landscapes that provide water and food for local communities and protect indispensable ecosystem services that are key to mitigating climate change. Jane's work is at the forefront of this new global vision. Now back to the interview. As we rethink our relationship to nature and animals, what are your feelings about being dependent on animals source proteins um, and how transitioning to, to a vegan or vegetarian lifestyles, you know, what that would open up for us in the health of the planet? Yeah, I don't have strong views uh... Or, or really clear insights on this one. I think it's a personal choice. I mean, clearly the world is eating, or at least part of the world is eating far too much meat, and this is driving unsustainable um, trades in things like soy, which in turn is devastating environments and undermining well-being. So I think um, everybody can take their personal responsibility on that to make shifts in their diet. I would say that... For example, we see that fisheries are, um, native fisheries are really a vital part of uh, nutrition in many parts of the world. So, um, and this can go alongside conserving the diversity of, uh, of fisheries. And also there are many uh, wetland habitats which will require on there being some grazing animals <laughs> to, to keep them in, in condition. So having sustainable um Farming systems, which include animals, I think uh, is, is, is always part of the solution, but clearly we need to make a shift. In terms of your um, forthcoming or current projects that you're most excited about or to, excited to see progress on, you know, what are, what are some things that Wetlands is doing now? Um, yeah, where to start? I mean, I, I've mentioned a few things such as uh, combining wetlands into infrastructure solutions. I think um, this is happening with, with supporting uh, work in different cities and different landscapes around the world. And I think uh, working with engineers is really productive. This is a game changer, you know, because uh, building resilience from climate change is, is a lot to do with infrastructure. How we do that and accepting nature as part of infrastructure, that's a game changer. And so um, wetlands especially play a big role in that. So in Asia, we're working with five countries for um, some really big demonstrations of how this can make a difference. And we aim for that to go global. Um, equally, I mean, at a smaller scale in Europe, for example, we're highlighting that the cause of the dramatic summer floods in Germany, Netherlands recently um, was a lot to do with losing wetlands, small wetlands that, that functioned as natural wetland sponges in the tributaries. 
the loss of those made a dramatic difference to the impact of those floods. So raising awareness of um, how natural wetland sponges could be part of the solution across this continent. Yeah, that I think this is uh, vital. And well, generally what we need to do, what we're working on right now is to try and just get wetlands more clearly on the agenda. You know, as, as we've mentioned, uh, there were some tremendous pledges for, for forests and land use and for oceans in the outcome of the, the climate summit. You could, you could say that wetlands are included there as part of the um, terrestrial ecosystems and part of the ocean coast, but they're not visible. And as long as they're not visible, and as long as there aren't targets for wetlands, then they will be overlooked. They will, the threats will come through and we will continue to lose them fast. And this will undermine all the good climate action. So what we're looking to do right now is to really build a public campaign, but also work very hard through national advocacy to try and get some wetland targets in place in the global biodiversity framework. Um, and we could really use some, some support uh, for this um, because yeah, it's a, it's a big ask to, to, to get this to happen within the coming months and within the coming year. Well, it does go back to education and what we're exposed to. And I think that this, um, you know, again, a lot depends on perception. I'm sure you're thinking about this all the time. It's, it's an amb it's ambiguous area. We can see when there are ice shelves breaking off. But something about wetlands, as you say, because of this diversity, how can we then better educate our citizens, young students, but, you know, everyone who votes, because we all have a say in this, and then we can care or really understand the uh, importance of wetlands. Yes, you're right. But I think everybody at school learns about the water cycle. You know, that, that rings a bell with everybody. And uh, so maybe this is a, a good hook, you know, to show the, the place of wetlands in um, capturing and uh, purifying, storing water. And then in turn, how this links to what, what we're seeing every year droughts, floods, fires, which are devastating and, and life-threatening. So I think this may be um, one of the easiest routes in, connecting wetlands with, with water and the direct impact on that. Floods, droughts, fires ha have real impact, heat waves have real impact all around the world now. So uh, I think using this is, uh, is a good way. And maybe also the connection with, uh, with agriculture and the future of agriculture. Yes. And do you have some education outreach programs on how is, I mean, you have work with volunteers and things like that. So uh, many of our offices do excellent work. So it's more done, you know, country by country than, than as a global um, effort. We do have um, some tremendous links with, with schools, for example, on, on mangroves in, in uh, Senegal. In Indonesia, we, we have uh, yeah, many educational programs uh, where, where school kids are, are very involved. Our organization is learning from the, these interactions with young people. We started a Power of Wetlands campaign, um, which was, was also featured in uh, the Water Action Day in, in the COP. And we'd love people, young people to, to join and uh, express their views and support um, and join our, our letter which is pushing for wetlands to be included in climate action um, and to just join the conversation online, you know, to, to put pressure 
on uh, leaders and um, thought leaders to make the right decisions about people, climate and nature, and to recognize the role of wetlands in that. And you spoke about water speaking to something in you from a young age. Do you have, you know, some memories of the beauty and wonder of the natural world that really just, you know, sparked that interest that I, I don't know if your whole family background was just something that, you know, everyone in your family was involved in? No, not at all. I, I, there was nothing um, coming from my family. I, but I was always um, wanting to be in nature. And uh, from a very young age, I, I sought that out. I went on expeditions from age 17 to Belize, for example, um, and uh, worked in, in Yemen and Somalia in my early 20s. I, I sought out, yeah, very well places in the world and was, was well, fascinated by this feeling that, you know, people are just part of nature. You know, I never could see people as being special from nature. I always saw, uh, always rejected those ideas and always saw um, people as part of nature. So when I, you know, studied ecology, it all made sense to me. And then feeling vulnerable in a big wild landscape and, and feeling the power of nature, you know, whether it's you know, big ocean rollers pounding in or whether it's being in the middle of a vast desert, as I have been, for example, in the middle of Australia, I think, yeah, this is what, what sort of touches my heart. And I suppose I learned, you know, through my work that uh, you don't change things through science, which is, of course, how I was taught. You, you know, it's, it is about winning hearts and minds. And it is about enabling people to come together around nature. So that's kind of a shift that's kind of an understanding that, I, that, that has come gradually and it, it, it's created a shift in me as how to approach um, the problems that we face. Yes, and I think really, someone expressed it to me recently, and it's a, it's a simple idea, but I think that like what is good in us is nature. I hope that we all have this feeling that we are part of nature. I think some, you know, industrial societies, uh, we get for further and further away from nature. And then I think that's where a lot of the unhappiness stems from than the need for consumerism as a replacement for this, you know, hole we find uh, inside ourselves. But I think that everyone, you know, when they get close to nature, something op else uplands up in them and it's beyond words, it's beyond anything. It's part of our ancient memory. Yeah, I, I, I hope you're right about that. I, I do have a worry that some people unfortunately don't have much chance to connect with nature um, and therefore later in life don't really recognize this the importance I think this is this is really a pity in my younger days I, I did for a while for example go into inner London and, and help to um, bring kids into into wetlands and other nature and I saw you know some were they were worried to get mud on their boots they were quite frightened of nature this distresses me a lot that kids can grow up like that because I was lucky enough to grow up you know in a very rural uh, farming environment I was privileged in that regard and I've uh, been very privileged to visit some of the most uh, natural wild beautiful uh, places on this planet but also to see what happens when such areas are mistreated um, 
and I suppose I yeah I get pretty angry about the needless destruction of such areas which are born of a misunderstanding that that we as people have a choice between nature and development you know this is is just complete rubbish <laughs> and uh, uh, you know to I suppose what I'm trying to do with all my work is to show how nature underpins human well-being and uh, how you know biodiversity how rich nature yeah is so vital for our spiritual well-being and our and our physical health as well i think um there is a there is a general upsurge in in a new style of conservation i would say that is born out of uh, these kind of uh, insights um, and it's not new, no, it's reconnecting with the old. <laughs> this is where, this is in all societies, as you say. So it's remembering that and bringing it to the fore and bringing those voices to the fore, which is uh, so important. And if anything's going to change the future of our planet, I think it's that. If we can really bring those voices and, and those uh, connections with nature to the fore and, and uh, allow that to be powerful in changing how we interact with our landscape, then, uh, well, this will transform. And I've been so happy to see how earth law, as you know, as flawed as it may be, but that the rivers have rights then to, to exist. This, this idea that was maybe considered a dream or a fantasy, it's just lovely to see that enacted in different, interpreted in different ways in different countries. Um, but like to see, you know, it, it in the constitution in Ecuador, to see, you know, different places around the world, you know, catching on to this, um, that, that's exciting. And it seems strange now to think that that could even be controversial, that nature has a right to exist. The indigenous point of view is like completely opposite. Like we should be th thanking nature every day for living in its space. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've heard people, uh, Inuit people, I've heard uh, Aboriginal people who really educated me in, in Australia. I've listened to people in uh, Indigenous communities in Somalia uh, explain exactly this, you know, and it takes a, a little effort to get to be open to, to these kind of uh, ideas. Because I think, well, for me anyway, I've been trained to think differently. But but once you open up to it, yeah, it's very natural. And there is a Rights of Wetlands uh, campaign, which is allied to the, the rights of nature. But there's a specific Rights of, of, of Wetlands campaign, which Wetlands International is supporting. Because we do believe this is a, a good way to go, to see a whole river and floodplain system as a being and having a right to exist um, and to, to the connectivity and the dynamism that should be there. Yeah, I think this, this really adds to, um, to our toolkit, if you like. I would like to see earth law adapted more widely. And not that everyone has to adapt it into their constitutions, but that we reverse this idea that nature belongs to us or that corporations could take precedence over nature once it's on their property. Like nature is property, so it's such a strange idea. Yeah, I fully agree. I think the, the fact that environmental lawyers are getting behind this uh, rights of nature, rights of wetlands is, is fantastic. Yeah, my only concern is that um, 
in, in bringing this to the fore, we don't then throw out all the other approaches. <laughs> and I think, you know, for example, Wetlands International, we work with uh, private companies and we're, we're proud to work with some of the leading companies. We think that the private sector and their investments have a big part to play um, alongside the public sector and together with local and traditional communities to make a difference. So we, wouldn't, we don't see it as either or. There is a, a gap of trust between these different players sometimes. And one thing that Wetlands International does do is try to resolve this, to bring the parties together. Because, you know, it's only really by working together that we're going to make a, a big enough difference quick enough, to be honest. My generation is often... <laughs> burdened with this idea that we have to solve climate change, Gen Z or other future generations. And often that comes with this burnout or this dread or cynicism. How have you overcome this exhaustion or burnout in terms of trying to solve such an existential crisis? And what advice can you give to my generation and other folks that are trying to get more involved but don't know how or feel cynical about the process of solving climate change? Yeah, you have to be optimistic in this business, otherwise you drop out. It's as it's, uh, simple as that. And I think uh, there, are, there are many causes of hope. Uh, I really like the approach that Prince William has brought forward, the, the, green, the Earthshot approach, where he's uh, trying to stimulate optimism and reward. I think this is extremely positive. So yeah, my way of dealing with it is uh, find a moment to to go into the landscape and, and be in a place where something positive is happening um, between people and nature, however small, it, it immediately uh, lifts you. If you see the resilience of people who have been really affected, for example, by fires in the Pantanal, or whatever, and that, how they're working together now to solve it and to put things back. Yeah, this, this drives you into action mode uh, immediately. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as young people, you you can have a lot of uh, power. I think there are some really great career choices to make at the moment because uh, we need new expertise that combine different disciplines. So I think uh, that's one way. Choose, a, choose that path carefully and to make a difference and really, you know, work through these grassroots uh, efforts, but also, you know, influence the politicians. They're getting, they're much more open now to young people. So yeah, I think uh, it's fantastic to, to see this coming forward, um, really carrying the banner of, of nature in the context of, of climate. But yeah, not only criticizing, but pointing to the solutions, pressing for, for specific actions. I think this helps. That's really you know, great advice. And as you think about the future and, you know, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generations, you know, and, and the, the teachers that have been important to you, the life lessons that, you know, made you the environmentalist you are today, what would you like, um, you know, what were some of those teachers and what would you like you, young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, there are many people I could mention. There. <laughs> uh, for example, Guy Manfred, who was the late Guy Manfred, who was a tremendous naturalist. 
and who was one of the initiators of uh, WWF. I was lucky enough to meet him. He gave me advice about uh, my ambitions to to lead a, a research project in Somalia. Everybody was telling me, you're ridiculous, you're, you're 22, you can't go and work in, in Somalia, it's, it's dangerous, impossible, um, no one's going to listen to you. And uh, yeah, he's, he talked to me and he said, okay, this, let me give you some advice. And, he, you know, people believing in you, supporting your ambitions, uh, it helps a lot. Um, Dr. Luke Hoffman, who yeah, was the beginning of yeah, a whole generation of wetland scientists, conservationists, he also picked me out and uh, gave yeah, put a huge grant when I started with WWF in my hands and, and gave me the trust and the space to, to work. I learned so much from him. Fred Pierce, who's a fantastic writer, who, who joined me in writing the, the book we published, Waterlands. His way of... Um, using individual stories and connecting it with science to make a very powerful case. Yeah, this has been very instrumental in, in my thinking. So there are many such people. Um, unfortunately, very few female role, role models <laughs> when I was uh, starting my career. I think it's a, it's a very positive thing that this is changing. A lot of young women now um, speaking up, playing great roles in, in this business but still a minority. I think uh, I try to, to play some kind of role in encouraging others to come forward and uh, give people space to, to make a difference, to try new things. I think this is, this is vital. Yeah, I mean, we, none of us are certain, and particularly in this uh, struggle, uh, everything is a struggle, but you know, the persistence and to just believe in yourself. I have to say also that we're supported by the, the Hoffman family for our arts project, the creative process. And he was of oh. course great. And so a little bit of a linkage there, the Jan Michalski Foundation for our arts projects. So thank them for their support too. Um, but yeah, it's it's lovely when you can just just see those that I'm like as our listeners and young people, you know, embarking on their environmental careers just look at the example that you have shown and their dedication and commitment it's it means so much because we can then model ourselves after you and the the great longevity of uh, wetlands international as well you know everything started off as an idea it wasn't perfectly formed and you, you speak a little bit of, also about the you, you know, in closing about the evolution of, um, well, it wasn't always Wetlands International, you know, it began. Tell us a little bit about that history that we might not know about. Well, I think the, in the last, well, nearly 18 years since I've been in this position, I think it's been a, well, a privilege just to understand what our, our really fantastic team around the world have been doing, you know, their work, just uncovering their work. Uh, and connecting them together around a, a global ambition, really sharing a, a strategy now to transform wetlands around the planet. Um, I get a lot of energy from, from that. You know, it's a fantastic team of people and, and then they in turn have their networks and their partners. And I think yeah, this is what conservation is all, all about. It's about mobilizing society. It's about inspiring and mobilizing society and um, using whatever skills we have to connect with others. And I think that's really been 
the, the, the approach of Wetlands International the last 15 years or so is not to just have ambition for ourselves, you know, to have lots of projects and programs and visibility, but really to connect with others and see how together we can make a change. And of course, in doing that, yeah, we also need to strengthen our organization and be visible, but it's about what we can do together with others. And uh, I think the, the special history of our organization is that we, we kind of evolved from many different places in the world. And only recently did we have a global office and, and bring it all together as a global organization. Most conservation organizations are, start the other way. They have a central office and then they try and spread out. I think we have an advantage because, um, you know, we're rooted all around the world and especially in developing countries. And all of our staff are, are nationals there. So we have an authenticity. So as I say, my job is a pleasure because it's just bringing this to life and helping us to, to find a course together and making then the, the best of this very local presence and being a trusted uh, partner and authority locally, together with having a, a global voice that can you know, shift the agenda, enable that local action and the, the finance to flow to the local situation. Yes, well, that's so true. And so I you know, urge anyone who is listening, you may be involved in wetlands, you may be wanting to see how you could apply this to your own, you know, local concerns. Um, and of course, it's not one solution fits all. It's what adapted to your local environment. And uh, that's the, truly the principle of sustainability and what we've uh, taken away from our conversation with you. So thank you, Jane Madgwick and Wetlands International for your work protecting wetlands and the biodiversity, water systems and carbon storage that depends on them and helping us understand how we can better manage these distinct ecosystems that are disappearing faster than forests. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. It's my pleasure, Mia. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Phoebe Browse with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The Associate Interviews Producer and Digital Media Coordinator on this podcast was Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.